Our reading this morning is from Galatians 3:23 through 4:7. This is what the Holy Scripture says. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Please read together with me. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Thanks, Jessica. <clears throat> You all will have to excuse me, I have a little bit of a cold this morning, so I'm going to be a little more subdued than usual. I'm usually pretty subdued anyway, so that won't be much of a change. <clears throat> Today, if you've been paying attention, is an important occasion. It marks the 500th year uh, since the apparent start of the Reformation, Martin Luther uh, pinning his uh, disagreements, objections to the Catholic Church, to the church door in Germany. 500 years, that's quite a uh, moment to celebrate. And uh, I was looking online at the uh, different uh, stories and ways that churches are celebrating this occasion. And, and one suggested that a way to celebrate and mark this occasion... Uh, is to preach a sermon on justification. Uh, that's one of the core concepts that Luther brought to the table, so to speak, in the conversation of God's Word and the Gospel. Many call, uh, call it Luther's discovery of the Gospel. Because according to the more uh, medieval understanding of justification, a, pers a person gradually receives divine grace uh, which eventually heals our, our, our wounds that we get from sin, our sin's wounds. Now, Luther abandoned that kind of medical view of God imparting grace to us. And Luther, in reading Romans chapter 1, came to the table and, and preferred legal language to talk of God's imputation that God accepts Christ's righteousness, which is ailing to us, uh, that we receive that by faith, 
uh, and it's God's grace to us, a gift. So even though God doesn't remove our sins, uh, he does grant us Christ's righteousness. So at the same time, we're, we're sinful, and yet we're saints. And this is this uh, core idea and concept that Luther brought uh, that kind of changed the world in many ways. Uh, to use Luther's language, I feel like because it's this, this occasion, we have to quote Luther, right? It, it would only... Uh, be right. And so we'll, talk, we'll look at Luther's words here in that sweet exchange that he talks about between Christ and the sinner. He said it this way, therefore, my dear brother, learn Christ and him crucified. Learn to pray to him, despairing of yourself, saying, thou, Lord Jesus, art my righteousness and I am thy sin. Thou hast taken on thyself what thou wast not and hast given to me what I am not. Justification, this, this moment where God is a judge and he slams the gavel down and he declares you not guilty, but innocent. And not just innocent, but tells you Christ's righteousness is yours. Jesus standing in your place. Now, uh, Paul references this concept in our passage this morning at verse 27. Did you notice what he says? Where he, he says, For as many as, of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And it seems appropriate that in light of Halloween coming up, we think of it almost like a costume. Now, I have a couple of cute photos here of kids uh, in some of the costumes. <laughs> These are ideas. We have a lot of babies in the room. Let's see the next one here. What is this? Is this the sushi? Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty cute. Okay, Teddy, thanks for that. <laughs> uh, we got the lumberjack, of course. So, so these are, are cute uh, moments, uh, uh, these ideas of costumes for Halloween. But that's kind of the idea, spiritually, that the costume we wear before God is Christ Jesus. And that we are declared just because of that. Now, okay, Luther, I, I touched on justification, but that's not really what we're talking about this morning. Okay? In fact, what we're talking about is adoption. We're talking about adoption. And some would argue that even though we in, in Presbyterian reform circles talk all the time about uh, justification, some would argue the more important doctrine is our adoption into the family of God. J.I. Packer put it this way, that adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers, higher even than, dare I say, justification. To be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater. So two ideas and concepts, two images, God as judge, God as Father. Today we're focused on God as Father and our adoption. Now, there's lots of images we can use to think about God and how God relates to us universally as a, as a human race. If we think universally how God relates to us, he is universally our creator, isn't he? Every human being on the face of the earth owes their, their being to God. So God universally is our creator, having, bring, having brought all things into existence. A God is universally our king, whether we acknowledge him to be so or not, he is our king. He rules and sustains over all his creation. 
And God is universally our judge, as we just mentioned. God will judge each and every one of us, no matter your faith background. So universally, God is all those things. But is God universally our Father? According to Paul, no. We are not naturally born into the family of God. That's what Paul's talking about here. That God adopts his people into his family. And this is an important theological point that most people don't like to consider. But it's biblical. We are born children of wrath. That's how Paul talks about it in Ephesians chapter 2. That we are born children of wrath. We kind of referenced it in the confession of sin from Psalm 51 this morning. We are born dead in our sin. At enmity with God. Enemies with God. That is universally how all of us are brought into the world. Until that moment when God adopts us into his family. It's a story we all share if we're a believer in Jesus Christ. It's a story we all share if we're a part of the family of God. And the images that Paul uses in this passage is he kind of refers to all of us being born as slaves. Slaves to the law. Notice in verse 23 and 24, uh, Paul refers to us being held captive under the law. And then in verse 24, notice he says that the law was our guardian. Now, what is the law? What law is he talking about? He's certainly not talking about traffic laws or, or, or civil laws. He's talking about the law of God. And, and Scripture summarizes what the law of God is. The law of God is to love the Lord your God with all of your being and love your neighbor. Simple, but impossible for any of us to obey. And that's why Paul refers to the law as a prison. That's the imagery we see in verse 23. I want you to think of the law as a prison, uh, being held captive, almost like military guards are watching over you. The other image he seems to give here is, is a kind of a strict tutor. I want you to think of that image of, of someone who's with the ruler and they're ready to slap you if you do wrong. That's what we're born into. We're born into this kind of relationship with the law of God. It's a prison. It's a strict tutor. That's the language Paul wants us to understand here. And truly, our relationship with the law is based on our performance. That's why it's so oppressive. That's why it's such a prison to us. Because none of us can obey it fully and completely. Because the law of God speaks not just to your outward behavior. For example, if the law says, don't gossip, maybe you could do a pretty good job for the week not gossiping. You may not have any conversations with anybody, uh, but you can do your best. But the law speaks not just to the words you use, it speaks to your heart. Um, if, if the law tells you don't be angry with someone, you may not yell at them, you may not be angry at them with your words, maybe even your actions, but internally, if you hate them, you're breaking the law. And so the law is oppressive in that way. I'm, um, I love audiobooks. I'm listening to this book by Frederick Backman. If, if you know A Man Called Uva, maybe you, you read that or see, saw the movie. Um, this is a, uh, his follow-up book, Beartown. 
And it's about a small rural community that is obsessed with hockey. And their youth team, uh, their junior team, is, is going to play in the semifinals um, uh, game. And so they're obsessed with hockey. And they, they tell the story of this one uh, kid, the star player on the team. His name's Kevin. And uh, Kevin has this terrible relationship with his parents because his parents are like the law. The parents, when, when, when he has a game, his, for one, his parents never come to the games because his parents work so hard uh, because excellence is their ultimate value. But when they see Kevin after the game, they don't ask if he scored. They ask, how many did you score? That's their, that's their response. And when he gets a test back, Kevin does really well in school. When he gets a 49 out of 50 on his exam, his father doesn't say, wow, that's a great job. Good job, son. He says, why'd you miss the one? That's the law. That's how the law treats us when we try to live it out. The law is brutal. The law, law holds us prisoner when, when it's the means by which we try to prove our worth. And prove our identity. We can re- relentlessly strive to, to uh, obtain it, to live it out, but we live condemned, we live as failures. And that's why it can be so oppressive, the law. But what does Paul tell us here in this passage, the wonderful news of the gospel? In verses 4 and 5 of chapter 4, this is the heartbeat of the gospel right here, friends. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, just like us. Just like us. To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. This language of redemption is a language of purchase, that Jesus has purchased us. He has bought us with his very life, the life he gave on the cross, and we are freed. We were slaves under the law. Now Jesus has purchased us and bought us freedom, and he gives us the righteousness that we do not have. And the reality is that Jesus lived the law perfectly. That's the gospel good news, that Jesus not only did all the right things, out of his heart flowed all the right things. That Jesus was the God-man who lived the law perfectly, and by faith, we can tap in. We can tap in to his righteousness. Not only do we receive forgiveness for what we've done, we have so much more in store for us by faith. And through that, We are adopted into the family of God because Jesus Christ was God's only true son. And by faith, we become God's sons as well. Now, at the heartbeat of what Paul's talking about is the Roman law of the first century. Uh, There was no Jewish adoption law uh, in place. If a man died without male offspring... The only way he could continue his line is if his relative or brother, closest male relative, uh, were to uh, engage uh, with his wife, have an heir. That's how in Jewish law that this was passed on, a man's inheritance. But in Roman law, by contrast, it allowed a childless, wealthy man to create an heir outside his family. He could adopt even a household slave to become his heir. And in that moment of adoption, that slave ceased to be a slave. 
He was truly and legally and rightfully heir of all of his master's wealth because his master is transformed from a master to a father through that legal act. That's the wonderful adoption that we all experience when we come into the family of God. And Paul says we are all sons, each and every one of us. Now, women, please hear me. Some do not like this language. They think, well, we should say sons and daughters. But uh, some scholars and, and theologians and pastors have made the point, no, if we say that, we are actually missing out on a beautiful aspect of our adoption. Because in Paul's day, a woman had no right to inherit property. None at all. And therefore, for a woman in the first century to be called a son was a declaration of a new identity for her. That she, in Jesus Christ, would now have the legal access to inheritance that she didn't have before. It's a wonderful truth. And I think Paul's getting at that in verse 28 when he makes this profound statement. He says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male and female, for you are all one in Christ. Now, Paul's not trying to eliminate our distinctions. We are distinct ethnically. We are distinct socioeconomically, uh, all sorts of ways. We can't ignore those or wipe those out or pretend that those aren't realities. But what Paul is saying, with our status, we are all equals. Whether you are male or female, you are sons. We are sons. And so this is the glorious news. We have been adopted into the family of God, but so what? So what? Well, I want to offer just a couple of uh, points of application for, for this beautiful passage that we have this morning. And the first, it, it relates to how this doctrine of adoption can begin to shape our view of our church family. If you've been with us for any amount of time over the past month and a half, we've been pressing home this idea that we as a church are a spiritual family, that we are family. And we've acknowledged all the difficulties of that. We've acknowledged how hard it is in Los Angeles and in Long Beach and Orange County. We are so spread out. We're so different. How do we begin to become family? Our adoption into the family of God is a crucial point that we need to hold on to and allow the application of it to flow into our relationships as a church. For example... Adoption should create a family culture of equality, of equality at King's Church. And what that means is we have equal status. And this touches on what I just talked about for the ladies in the room. You have equal status with the men in the room. Those of you of different ethnicity than me, you have equal status as I do. And I have equal status as you do. That's such a key principle we see in Paul's point in verse 29 where he says, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs, according to the promise. Paul's making that point because there really, there really was prejudice in the church. Jews who were ethnically, biologically descended from Abraham 
could very easily view themselves as superior to a Gentile who is not in the biological line of Abraham and look down on those people and feel like, well, you're just not as good as I am. Does that sound familiar? I mean, are we guilty of that? Of course we are. Of course we are. We're humans. Our sin causes us to look down on each other. That's because we haven't grabbed hold of this idea that we are all adopted into the family of God. Spiritually, we are brought in because of nothing we bring to the table. Gender discrimination, ethnic discrimination, all these things, we must repent of these things. And one of the things about the PCA recently, within the past year or two, has been making strides to repent of these sins that the PCA has participated in, either by the things they've said or not said, in regards to racial reconciliation. That has to flow out of our adoption. We are equals of equal status. And it's not based on race or gender or education or economic status. And I, my friends, am not as pastor on a higher plane than any one of you. I am adopted into the family of God just as you are. And I look at you now and I can say my adopted sister and my adopted brother. And you can say the same to me. It's a beautiful, glorious truth that should shape and cultivate a culture of equality at our church. We also have equal status to God as our Father. Paul ends the passage there where he he talks about how God has given us his spirit, allowing us, motivating us, compelling us to cry out to God, Abba, Father. And he says, you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son than an heir through God. This word, Abba, Father, it's Papa, it's Daddy. That's the language that Paul's trying to communicate, and it communicates intimacy and closeness. I'm in a uh, a video uh, cohort with some pastors all over the, the world, and one of the leaders of the group, every time he prays, he starts off with, Hi, Dad. And it's really kind of weird. <laughs> it's still awkward. But each time he does it, it stops me in my tracks. And I'm like, yeah, that's good. Hi, Dad. You have that access to God just as I do. Because you have been adopted into the family of God just like I have. And you've brought nothing to the table and neither have I. And so we can enter into God's presence and grab hold of the promises that we have in Christ and we can be bold when we pray to God. And and there's an intimacy there and we can latch on to him. Think of a young child who just runs to their father and latches on and holds tight. They would never even think for a moment that their father would not grasp them and hold them. And that's the glorious truth that we have in Christ. We are adopted into God's family. And so we have that equality and that status. And the second thing I'm going to end on is that this idea of adoption really should create a family culture of grace. The gospel isn't simply about forgiveness of sin. Okay? It's not simply about forgiveness of sin. You think about a credit card payment you've had. Some of you bigger payments than others. You think about how good does it feel when you pay that credit card payment off. For so many Christians, that's the extent of the gospel. 
It's like Jesus has come and paid off your credit card payment. Wonderful news. Glorious news. Better news for some of you than others. But there you are sitting at zero. And so what's next? You got to straighten up and get your life together. Or what? You're going to just do the same thing you did before and build up your debt. That's the law as a prisoner, as a prison, and that's the law as a strict tutor. That is not the full gospel. The full gospel is Jesus has not only paid that debt, but he's, he's given all his riches into the bank account. His inheritance is now our inheritance. Jesus wipes our slate clean, but he also gives us all of his riches. And you receive all those riches. Nothing that you've done to deserve it. That is the fullness. That is the heaviness of grace. That is the wonder of God's grace. And if you truly hold on to that concept, it transforms your relationship with God. You truly begin to live in your sonship as sons of the living God. It's grace from start to finish. And if that has touched your heart, then it will begin to shape how you relate with other people. When you begin to criticize, when you begin to see the faults in others, when you begin to, to point the finger at others within our church family, then you'll stop for a moment and you'll go, now wait a minute. Where does grace come into play? How does my sonship affect how I view my brother or my sister? How should grace begin to transform how I receive people who don't measure up to my law when I realize I don't measure up to God's law and yet God freely forgives and is gracious to me? Another way uh, to think about it is the image that Tim Keller uh, gives in his commentary on Galatians. He says, you know, it's not just that Jesus has redeemed us off of death row. You might think, you know, of the gospel as you're on death row and Jesus dies in our place. And then, you know, we get out of prison. Then again, if that's all there is, then you better shape up. You better start living right. You better not do anything again. But the reality and truth is not only does Jesus get you out of prison Jesus comes along and puts the Congressional Medal of Honor on you. And that is the highest honor any military personnel can receive. And the gospel truth is that's what you've received. By faith in Jesus. This medal. You are a welcomed hero in God's sight. And so when we remember that and when we live in that, it takes away our anxiety it takes away our judgmental hearts. It takes away our critical hearts. It begins to transform and change us. And so as we take a few moments, the band can come up. I just want to give you a few things. I'm going to run through a chart that kind of compares the heart of a, of a slave with the heart of a son. And, and I just want you to reflect on these as the band is preparing to lead us in the last song. And I hope this begins to bring the difference to light of the glorious news of the gospel. So I know this chart might be hard for you to see, but in this middle part is, is a particular category. And then 
I don't know if you're to your left or your right. It's my left, but you can't see what I'm looking at. Uh, it's the heart of a slave. So I guess it's your left, too. Uh, and then on the right is the heart of a son. So, for example, your image before the Father or your view of God, the image of God in your mind. If you're a slave, God is a master. If you're a son, God is a loving father. The next one, your dependency of God. If you're a slave, you're very independent and self-reliant. If you're a son, you're very interdependent and you acknowledge your need of God in all things. Uh, Your theology, you live by the love of the law. If you're a son, you live by the law of love. Uh, your security, you, you would be insecure if you're a slave, never knowing if you measure up, never knowing if you do enough. But if you're a son, you rest and you have peace. Your need for approval. If you're a slave, you're going to strive for praise, you're going to strive for approval, you're going you're to yearn for that acceptance of, of people in your life. But if you're a son, you know you're totally accepted in God's love and you're justified by grace. You rest in that. Your motive for service. If you're a slave, you need personal achievement as you seek to impress God and others. Or you have no motivation to serve at all. But if you're a son, service is motivated by a deep gratitude for being unconditionally loved and accepted by God. What about your motive behind the Christian disciplines like prayer and meditation and reading scripture? Well, for a slave, it's duty. It's earning God's favor. Or you're not motivated at all to do it. In comparison to that is the sun where there's pleasure and delight. Pleasure and delight. And finally, the motive for purity. For a slave, you must be holy to have God's favor. And this increases your sense of shame and guilt. But if you're a son, you want to be holy. You do not want anything to hinder intimate relationship with God. And so as you think about and evaluate your own heart and think about the reality of your adoption, where do you fit in these categories? Where do you find yourself gravitating towards as you think about your relationship with God? Let me pray for us that the Spirit would truly begin to settle this truth in our hearts. Lord, thank You for this wonderful message of the Gospel. I pray that we would rest in our adoption as sons of the living God. And may we begin to let that cultivate a culture of equality and a culture of grace at King's Church. Transform us, Holy Spirit, because it is you that has to do the work. We cannot manufacture it. Lord, we refuse refuse to try because we know that's just acting like a slave. And so we plead with you, Holy Spirit, to begin to create it in us, transform our hearts so that we might live freely for you out of our deep, deep love, Jesus. It is in your name we pray. Amen.